Wow. Speaking of thankfulness, uh, I had to go to Toronto earlier this week, and when I landed, it was snowing. I am so thankful, Lord, that you've called me to Raleigh, North Carolina, where I can come back and wear shorts. And it snows, you know, once or twice a year, so the kids stay happy. The Yankee in me is blessed. But thank you, Lord, that you've called me to Raleigh. I want to do, if you could bring up the the first slide, we're going to do a little family update. Thank you to Steve and and Michelle and Eric and the finance team. They they put together so much hard work behind the scenes. And then Steve put these together, these slides. So I just want to kind of give a little heads up of where we've gone and where we're going. Um, as we say, healthy things grow, and we're so excited that we are growing as a body of believers. Uh, if you compare Q1 uh, 2018 to, to this year, we're up 16% in adults and up 20% in kids. That's amazing. And it's not all through birth, although there's lots of new babies that are growing, right? And uh, we had 18 baptisms last week. Oh, that was awesome. Some of my favorite baptisms. Yeah, you can clap. That's amazing, you know. Some of my um, favorite baptisms are the spontaneous ones, the people that didn't come with the swimsuit, and they're ready, right? They're like full Sunday regalia, boom. I just, those are awesome. I mean, every baptism is cool, but those are really sweet. Okay, so if we look at how we've been growing from, uh, we're comparing last quarter of 18 to this quarter, um, we're up almost $55,000 in tithes and offerings, which is incredible, about 15.5%. Thank you for such a generous community. That is phenomenal. Um, And that is just tithes and offerings. We have other income from building rentals to events uh, to PMO, things like that. So that's just tithes and offerings. If you look at where we are right now, um, for January and February, our expenses outseated our income. Uh, and that happens, you know, from time to time, like in a family budget, you come out and you realize your car's flat. I mean, your car's flat. That'd be fun. Your tire is flat. <laughs> Although with as many trees are coming down, my car could actually be flat. I moved into a wooded neighborhood and I've burned through two chainsaws so far, I think. So there's a lot of trees and twigs and things. So anyway, so we carry reserves. So when there's things that come up that we need to, to sow into, uh, one of the main ones with 20% of a Sunday morning, 20% of a Sunday morning is our kids ministry. And so we want to put a financial uh, investment into sowing into them and the next generation. As they talked about in the video announcement, we're all about raising up the next generation. And so we've invested in that. That was something that we needed to do that wasn't in our original budget. And then and we also had some problems with some of the lights in the sanctuary. As amazing as this building is, if you come in and the lights don't work, it's a pretty bummer of a Sunday. So those are some of the things that we had to invest in. Um, and so kind of as you look at a stewardship where we've been, uh, if you've been here before, uh, you know, the Lord told us uh, a while ago and Duncan and Kate that he would take care of the buildings if we took care of the people. And we had, for those of you who know the history, we had the $1.4 million miracle at the last uh, facility, and then we had the near $8.5 million miracle in this building. It's just incredible. Thank you, Jesus. So he's been faithful, and so what we have done is being able to sow into people that are then sowing into other people. So you'll see our biggest expenses into personnel and staff, and that would be from salaries to health insurance to the police officers that you see around here um, to babysitters that uh, babysit during the event so that you can focus on receiving as opposed to your children running around um, Yeah, I have four kids, so about that. Anyway, missions, we sow, we believe in sowing into missions, and then CTF World is 9.2%. That's actually our tithe to our storehouse, which is Kestafar World. We return 10% uh, to our worldwide apostolic body that is about changing nations and church planting. It's 10%, it's just the way the math works out with the way it comes in, but we are uh, returning the full tithe. 
And then uh, events and leadership, things like starting point, core values, the women's conference, and various other events. And then office and administration, 10%. That's really exciting things like postage and envelopes and paper and all of those things and marketing that goes into that. So that's from where we are from a financial standpoint. Um, and then if you look at where we are for the year, because we had some extra expenses, if you look at total income, which would be tithes, offerings, and other income, we had 421000 and expenses of about 441000 Again, that leaves us for the first quarter is about 19000 short, which we used uh, reserves, which is where we invested in those uh, other things that weren't budgeted for. So that's what we're believing Jesus for to close the gap is that uh, we have reserves for purpose, but we want to keep reserves for when things come up and there's new opportunities. And we are really excited to continue sowing into where we're going, sowing into the next generation. In fact, there's a huge uh, group of people going out in the streets of Durham today to just bless our brothers and sisters around here with Embrace Durham. And we just love... We just love being able to do that. And um, we have heard from many people that we make it very difficult for you to give. And so just for we're clear, we're all here. There's different ways that you can give. You can give online. There are boxes around uh, the sanctuary that you can give, uh, put envelopes in their checks, and then you can also download the PushPay app. So I just wanted to make it clear that there are different ways that you can sow into the ministry here at Catch the Fire. And also, if we could bring up the mission trip folks and come down here, we have an exciting mission trip coming up to the Dominican Republic led by Duncan and Kate Smith. So the mission team could come down here. This is not the whole team. There's literally people coming from all over the world to go to Dominican Republic and build houses for those folks that can't afford houses. And then they're gonna preach the gospel, hands and feet. If we could get some of the ministry team uh, here, people that have a passion for <clears throat> missions. We just want to blast these people, fill them up to overflowing. So when they go over there, they're literally dripping with Jesus. It's just every cell of their body is covered with Jesus. And just out, why don't we all just outstretch our hands right now <clears throat> and say, Father, come. Holy Spirit, fill up our friends to overflowing right now. <laughs> Kingdom of God, come. May they just be the hands and feet of Jesus to reveal your love to them, to show who you are. Thank you, Jesus. And my understanding is that they're still believing for some of the funding to come in to finish those houses. So if you have a passion for missions and you're not able to go on this trip, but you want to sow into them, feel free just to donate to Catch the Fire and put missions on there in Dominican Republic. Amen. We're just going to let them keep getting blasted as we transition. I do want to recommend, if you've never had an opportunity to go on a short-term mission trip, I highly recommend it. It's amazing. Uh, the fruit in your life. You think you're going for them, you're going for you. You receive way more than you could ever give out. So thank you guys for going and being the hands and feet of Jesus. Well, I'm excited about my message this morning. The Lord gave me the title, Jesus the Reconciler, the Tale of Two Trees, uh, which is kind of fun. And uh, <clears throat> have you ever heard of the, the saying like, ignorance is bliss or beginner's luck? Like six of you? Okay. That means when you start something, you're disproportionately good than those people that have, that have been doing it a long time, right? What happens in the beginning, you don't know what you don't know, so you just kind of go along. And as you start to progress, you start to learn that there's more that you don't know. And I think sports is a really good analogy of that. And for those of you that, that know me, know that I have a newfound fun. It's not a bird basket. Disc golf. The six of you in here that like disc golf. 
This is an exciting day. It was raining outside, so I just decided to play disc golf inside. Hope you don't mind. But in the beginning, I started playing disc golf, and I had this. For those of you who don't know disc golf, let's just go over it. For regular golf, use a ball and a club and hit it. Same principle, but you use frisbees or discs. And so what happens out on the real course, this is a practice basket. It folds up, goes in the trunk, but the ones out there are metal. And so what happens is you start from a tee pad, you throw it towards there with your driver, then your mid-range, and then you get close and you put it in. And so when you first start playing, you're highly likely to buy the three starter pack, right? You're gonna have the AVR putter, the shark, mid-range, right? Maybe the leopard driver, we'll see. And so what happens is, this is really good, but then you start realizing that there are shots that that starter pack doesn't allow you to do. Like all of a sudden you're way out here and you realize there is a tree in my way and I don't have a disc that is gonna do that. And all of a sudden you realize that you start to know that you need a little bit more help. And so, yeah, you move up to a mid-range bag, right? And this is exciting, because then you start having discs that, that go different directions. And so, to understand how a disc flies, there's these numbers on here that mean different things. And you start learning and you realize there's the speed of the disc. So when you're throwing backhand like this, it's the speed of the disc. How fast is it gonna go to get optimal flight? And that's a score of one to 14. Then you have glide when you throw the disc. How far is it gonna glide before it comes down? And that's a rating of between one and seven. And then you have turn when you're throwing it like this. What's the tendency of the disc in the beginning of the flight to go right and then come back left? And then you have the fade when you throw it and at the end, does it come back around? And you start to realize there's all these different shots and all of a sudden you start to realize there's more that I didn't know. And then you get a little bit better and you realize, wait a second, now I'm at this place that this may not work anymore. I need more. And then you upgrade. <laughs> and this is where it starts to get really fun, right? Because not only are there different companies that make different discs, there's different plastics within those discs. And so you may need have this really vicious dog leg right. And so you want to throw it this way, but all of a sudden you realize that you need to flick it because the tree's in front of you. And everything I just said about the disc dynamics change when you flick it instead of backhand. And you're like, oh, that's a nice predator shot. Then you start to realize, oh, I need a straight shot buzz, one of the best-selling discs of all time. Then you got the Buzz SS, which is a nice straight mid-range shot, which is just, oh, this is a beautiful disc. And then as you start to understand the intricacies of the game, you start to realize the more that you don't know, all of a sudden imagine, beautiful, glorious tee shot out a couple hundred yards, and then you got this pine straw hill leading up to the basket, and you need it to skip. So you bring out the Zone, Big Z plastic, hard, hard plastic, has an amazing ability to skip and bounce up. And that's a fun disc. Then a few holes later you realize, I need my disc to stop because there's a hill behind the basket, I need to park it. So then you have the same disc, the Zone, but in jawbreaker plastic. It feels kind of gummy and nice and sets up, right? And then all of a sudden you're there and you realize, oh no, I need a straight shot putter. I need to bring out the jawbreaker APX to get right through that tree. 
And then you go a little bit farther back because you need a driving putter and all of a sudden you bring out the Luna because that's a great driving putter. And pretty soon there's a lot of discs that I'm trying to learn how to use. And what happens, hole number two, perfect drive. I'm within my range, nice eight foot putt. Oh, birdie, yes. I told you we're playing disc golf today. Well, just one of us are. So I just made a birdie. So it's scored just like regular golf. There's a par, which is what the score should be. And then you try to get less than that. Or if you're like me, it's often more than that. But so now I was just in harmony with disc golf. It was beautiful. It felt good. Three holes later, <clears throat> as occasionally happens, you shank one off the tee. You end up in the woods. And they have this thing say, take your medicine, which means just throw it back in the fairway and go for it. But that's no fun. So you go for it. And then you shank another tree. And pretty soon, what could have been a nice birdie or par, you're sitting there thinking, I'm staring down a double bogey. This is not good. I am no longer in harmony with this golf. I just need this to save my double bogey. And disc golf. So what happened between hole two and hole number six? Did the nature of disc golf change? Did the basket all of a sudden say, I am so sorry that you can't make it in here. Let me expand myself to make it even easier for you. Did the dynamics of flight change? Nothing changed but me. I changed in my relationship. All of a sudden, I became out of harmony with disc golf. And I needed to come back into harmony again. And I think there are some spiritual kind of connotations that we can kind of look at through that silly analogy. But if you open your Bibles to Genesis 2, Michael referenced it last week. And uh, where we go through the creation of man and woman and the creation of the world. And then in Genesis 2, verse 15, we see the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you shall surely eat of the tree you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in that day you will surely die. So in the beginning, there was like one rule, don't eat from that tree, and life was good. And then it got a whole lot better when woman came on the scene. Can you imagine living in this oasis that just self-produces fruit? You're hanging out with God on a regular basis, and you're buck naked with your wife 24-7. I mean, that's awesome, right? Living the dream. And then we made a mistake, right? Then the fall comes in. And this is in Genesis 3, 1 through 13. I'm just gonna read this out to set the stage. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Not quite exactly what God had commanded. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die, for God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good food and it was in delight in her eyes and the tree <clears throat> was to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes were both open and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together to make themselves loincloths and then heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of day. And the man and his wife hid from the presence of God 
among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave me, she gave me the tree from the fruit, the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. The Lord said to the woman, what have you done? The woman said, well, the serpent deceived me. This is kind of like the genesis of the blame game, right? The woman that you gave me, gave me the fruit. It's your fault, God, and her fault. The woman's like, it was the serpent's fault. Well, my question was, when God gave Adam the commandment, woman didn't exist yet. She was created after that. How did he communicate what the command was? Did he communicate it accurately? It says that he was there. Was he, what was he doing when the serpent was talking? Did he fix it? He said, no, 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 don't eat the fruit, don't eat the fruit. So instead, he makes a mistake. He eats the fruit just like the wife, and all of a sudden, he's blaming her for that. And we have this perpetual blaming situation for blaming other mistakes, and that's when sin literally entered the cosmos. It started there. And then God, if you go on, <clears throat> in chapter 3 through 21, as sin entered and our relationship was fractured with God, we fell out of harmony. And it was as if what was once in perfect harmony became out of harmony because we missed the mark now when we started to sin. And God's in his grace and mercy says in, in chapter 3, 21 through 24, that the Lord God made Adam and his wife garments and clothed them. Then he said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also eat from the tree of life and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden to work the ground from which he had taken. <clears throat> it was God's grace, mercy that sent him out of there. Because what had happened is when they ate of that, it was as if death. If you look there, it says, if you eat it, you shall surely die. They didn't die immediately. But death entered the cosmos. It's literally like the spirit of death came upon them and all of a sudden the mortal body became a reality and without a, a, a savior, we would taste everlasting death. And so what he didn't want is that there was that fracture and that separation from you and God that entered there and he didn't want you to eat from the tree of life to be permanently set in that place of separation from God. So it's his grace and mercy that he sent them out and he evicted them so that there could be a better way to reform that relationship. And it was literally over the next 4,000 years of history that progressive revelation of who we need a savior to. Because if you think about it, we had like one rule in the Garden of Eden, right? Don't eat the fruit. What is it about one rule when you can't do something that makes you really, really want it? Like Chick-fil-A on Sundays, right? We honor and love what Chick-fil-A does and their standards, but you crave it really bad on Sundays. It's because you can't have it. They could eat anything in the garden that they wanted to. And my guess is it was really, 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 really good. And the one thing that they couldn't have, they wanted. And they ate it. And so what you see is that in the garden, there was one rule that we couldn't follow. And we messed up. And sin entered the cosmos. But then you start to see... <laughs> In the Old Testament, most scholars agree there are 613 commandments given by God. We couldn't keep one, let alone 613. And for 4,000 years, we tried, we tried, we tried. What sin actually means, it's an archery term. It means to miss the mark. So it means once sin entered the cosmos forever, we were missing the mark, we were missing the mark, we were missing the mark. But when Jesus comes, 
He fulfills all 613 things that we couldn't do. When we're one with Jesus, we no longer miss the mark because he made it for us. Amen? I need more Jesus on my disc golf courses. But So all of humanity is really a tale of two trees. You see, the first tree on the Garden of Eden, when they ate of it, brought death and a, and a, and a fracture of relationship. The second tree, the cross, the fruit of which brought, it looked like death, but the fruit of which brought everlasting life and reconciliation with God, which we have been trying for 4,000 years to do, which we couldn't do. And the Lord revealed how much we need a savior, how much we need Jesus. And they were striving and striving and striving. Can you imagine trying to keep 613 commandments? And many of them are very, 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 very specific, right? Read Leviticus. And then come back and be like, oh my goodness. So what does it mean when it says Jesus reconciled things? Let's look at 1 Colossians. Let's look at Colossians 1, 15 through 23. This is just an amazing scripture. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you, who are once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. That's what Jesus came to do. But when you start to look at the word reconcile, what does it actually mean? It's a Greek term that is only found in Christian writings, which is fascinating. And it's made up of two words. It's called apokatalasso. And I apologize for any actual Greek-speaking people, but that's the way I'm pronouncing it. It's made up of these two words, apo, A-P-O, which means finishing and completion, and katalasso, which means the exchange of hostility for a friendly relationship to reconcile, to reconcile completely. Jesus came to bring what was hostile, our relationship with God, where we we're consistently missing the mark and trying to do it on our own, he came to bring restoration completely, bring what was hostile to now bring a complete friendship. Adam and Eve's sin broke that relationship. And it's important that the way that they use the word, that Paul uses the word there and reconcile, it's not like two people got in a fight and decided to go in separate ways, and then they decided to come back together. No, it's as if one party unilaterally broke relationship and went away. And God, knowing that we couldn't, made a way and reached out for us and sent a savior so that we could come back into relationship with him. We needed to be reconciled with God. God never changed. So when I was missing putts, the nature of disc golf didn't change. Much like God never changed, but I need to be reconciled. I need to come back into harmony with how I was playing the game so that through Jesus, I wouldn't miss the mark anymore. Jesus came to reconcile everything and it wasn't his birth in the manger. It was his death on the cross that made it a way. So when you start to look at reconciliation, there's ways that it looks like it's not 
just the external transaction that you're no longer struggling with sin. Sin has been taken care of and the hostilities removed. It affects the sinner's desire. All of a sudden you have no desire to be alienated from God. You wanna be in regular relationship and community with God and you realize how much you need him in your life. Like when I was in college and I was sowing some wild seeds and working on my testimony, I didn't know what I didn't know. And all of a sudden, the revelation of the lifestyle that I was leading realized that it was only leading to death. And all of a sudden I gave Jesus my heart and it started to change my heart. And the overt, very obvious major sins in my life ended. But then began the process of walking that out and applying the blood of Jesus in every aspect of my life. That means taking captive every thought. That means everything that we're working on, we wanna put it to the mind of Christ so that every thought, every imagination that we are is going to Jesus. And then that starts to bring a change in our heart and we no longer want to sin. Think about before you knew Jesus, how easy it was to sin. You didn't even think about it. You just went and did whatever you wanted to do. I mean, occasionally there were some consequences like the headache the next day, but you just went and did what you wanted to do. Now, if you're gonna sin, you're like, oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, oh no. You're, you're internally wrestling with this. The Holy Spirit's in you because he wants you to be in complete harmony with Jesus and the Lord. Whew. And as you're starting to change, your situations around you start to change. Your atmosphere starts to change. You start to realize that you're one with Jesus. You're reconciled with him. And all of a sudden, the creator of the universe is in you and through you. And you get to lay hands on the sick and they get to be healed. You get to bring words of knowledge. You get to start to apply kingdom principles in your business. You start to realize that all things can be reconciled. And it's the, you start to realize that it's not just the spoken word, which is important because it brings death and life. So you want to make sure the words coming out of your mouth are good. But what about the power of your mind? It says, how many thoughts a day do you have? How many of them are positive? How many of them are negative? How many of them are communing with the kingdom? There's this really kind of grotesque story from one of the wars. They were doing human experiments and they would strap two people to the table and they would slice the wrists of one of them and watch them bleed out. Watch the other person watch them bleed out and they would time it. And then the person to the next side, they would blindfold them and take a piece of sharp ice and run it across. So they weren't actually cut, but it felt like they were cut because they felt the dripping of the water. And they, they died in almost the same period of time, just with their mind. The reality is we have an amazing, powerful mind that when we put it in agreement with the kingdom, it can release amazing things, both good and bad for us, right? So we wanna make sure that everything is reconciled with Christ Jesus. And the world doesn't need to know that they're sinning. They need to realize that they have a loving father, right? I remember there's so many times you'd get into people like the internet and people are just going crazy. And you're like, if the Christians would just reunite in this nation, let alone the nations, can you imagine what it would look like? We, if we could focus on the 95% that we agree on, did Jesus come? Did he die? Is he the only way? his resurrection, right? Instead, we start focusing on these little things and this denomination doesn't like this denomination. All of a sudden we start warring and all of a sudden the devil's like, this is sweet, good luck, right? But we wanna bring everything back together to reconcile everything. And we wanna reveal the reconcilability. Once we're reconciled with Jesus, we can reveal that to others. And it starts to bring a change. I remember when you start to reveal the kingdom rather than tell them the kingdom, it shifts atmospheres. I was at a law firm several years ago and we had a Bible study in the law firm. And uh, this was kind of the old school. You start in the beginning, prayers report, prayer requests, all that kind of stuff, right? And they did all that and there was like seven requests. Everything was such and such a sick, such and such a sick, such and such a sick. And the Lord put it on my heart to teach about healing that day in a law firm. And I said, let's just hold off on those for a minute. Taught on healing, 
there was a paralegal that had this really nasty cramp and, and, and whatever, and we brought the kingdom, and she got instantly healed. I said, now with that revelation, let's pray for these seven people, right? We brought and manifested the kingdom. I was one with Jesus and reconciled that and showed them what it works and what it looks like when we're reconciled with the kingdom, right? And that's what we want to be able to do is to demonstrate the kingdom and show how we can work with Jesus as we are reconciled. And it says, as we start to operate in that, it's Paul says, when we grasp that, we get to start ministering. We get ministers of reconciliation. It's as if once we become one with Jesus and have that revelation, he lets us be ambassadors for him and get to show off how amazing it is to be one with him and reconciled with him. And then the Holy Spirit speaking in that person, it's the Holy Spirit that's doing it, but we get to be ambassadors for Christ Jesus. Whoo, that is exciting to start to see that. And then as you start to understand that, then your world around you starts to change. And all of a sudden there's a new level like, there was the Ten Commandments, and then Jesus brought the New Commandments, right? You're like, whoa, I can't even think negatively about someone? That's a whole different game. This is the kind of the new game. We set it up, and if you look in the New Testament, in Matthew, there was this that, that they were talking about. If someone sinned before they made an offering to God, they needed to go reconcile. They needed to go make it right with the guilty party. So this is the commandment. If you're guilty, you need to go make things right before you can be reconciled, right? You needed to lead in the reconciliation. Then we see in 1 Corinthians where it says that man and woman are to be united and if they separate and it wasn't the woman's fault, she should remain single unless she can be reconciled back with her husband. So there's this, this principle in the kingdom that if you're guilty, you need to work on reconciliation. There's a kingdom principle, if you're not guilty, you need to work on the reconciliation. Both if you're the offender or the offended, it's about reconciliation because Jesus wants us all to come together and understand who we are in him. God is about restoring relationships. If we could get the keyboard or music. Um, and I just want to take a moment right now. And as you're thinking, why don't you just... Close your eyes and, and, and as you start to think about, are there areas of your life, of your thought life that aren't reconciled with kingdom principles that you've been tweaked a little bit in your thinking? Are there some relationship issues that you may have been guilty? You may have not been guilty. You may have been offended. You may have been the offender that you were just struggling with. Maybe it's every time at Thanksgiving when you have to see cousin Jojo and the choices that he or she has made. That hostile relationship with maybe a brother or sister or coworker, and it just has never felt right. Can you give Jesus the opportunity to minister reconciliation so that you can release the kingdom? So ask the Holy Spirit, are there people in your lives? Are there areas of your life that you've been striving under the first tree rather than resting under the second tree? Let Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, which is our death, burial, and resurrection, which ultimately led to peace and reconciliation. We don't want to live in hostility anymore to God. We don't want to miss the mark anymore. And when we're one with Jesus and we allow his reconciliation to work through us and restore the relationship to God, it allows us to reveal his love to the world around us.
What I'd like to do is kind of a prophetic act. If we could just stand all together. And as a spirit of unity, can we just come together across the aisles and just put our arms around each other as a demonstration that we want to be reconciled with each other, we want to be reconciled with God, and that we want to bring healing and restoration to this area. This is what the kingdom looks like. We are made in his image. Look around you, there's a lot of images here. We're all made in his image. And it doesn't say your race or the color of your skin or your accent or where you're from, your hair color, whether you're short, tall, narrow, wide. We're all made in his image and we're all designed to come together to feel reconciled, to understand that we're reconciled with Christ, but that allows us to bring the ministry of reconciliation to every area. And it doesn't take much to look on the TV now and realize, realize that there are some fractions. Just watch the different various news programs and everyone tells the same facts with their own spin. But we wanna be above that. We want about Jesus and revealing the world to Jesus, which is full of love and peace and unity. Lord, use us in the ministry of reconciliation to break down walls that have divided us for eons. And thank you for making a way in your son, Jesus. Amen and amen.